Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you, and particularly those who've been away and are back for the first Sunday. It's lovely to have you back with us. You can always tell, actually, because uh, there, are, there are more decibels in the singing coming from the back of the room there, uh, and that's really good to hear. Won't you please keep your Bible open at the passage Lyndon read for us. Keep the bulletin also open in front of you, and uh, I'm going to ask for God's help as we look at uh, his word together. Well, Heavenly Father, it's, it is good to be together again after the holidays, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for this new series in Judges, uh, even though we're already in number three. But Lord, we do ask that you would come near to us and connect us with the important truths in this corner of your word. Um, we thank you for it. We pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it uh, feel like to <coughs> become a Christian and to grow as a Christian? I think a lot of people will say that when they were first converted, they, they had this idea in their minds that God is just a little bit bigger than we are and just a little bit better than we are. But uh, what happens when I grow as a Christian is that God becomes way bigger in my mind and I become far more aware of his goodness, of his holiness and of his perfection. And at the same time, I become more and more aware of my own weakness and frailty. Uh, I start to realise that uh, I'm not even the person I thought I was let alone the person God wants me to be. And so all kinds of things in my life that I had never really seen as being a particular problem before, well, they now begin to sort of eat away at my conscience. And so for some period of time, I begin to feel worse. Uh, many Christians, I think, get discouraged by that experience. They say, you know, I, I thought that being a Christian was going to make me a better person. But actually, I seem to be getting worse. Uh, I thought I was going to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually I feel less and less like him. Maybe Christianity isn't working for me. Maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. Now, can I say that the truth is that when I feel like that, I'm actually getting more in tune with reality. Of course, in reality, that gap between God and us is far, far greater than any of us will ever understand. But, but as we become more aware of how wide that gap is, uh, what that should do is, is not discourage us, but rather magnify the grace of God in our hearts and our minds. Because even though God knows just how big that gap is, we know that he sent Jesus to die for us, that we might be his friends, that we might be his people. Now I start with that this morning because <clears throat> if we listen rightly to what God is saying to us in the book of Judges, that's what's going to happen to us. You see, we're not studying Judges in order to pass an exam. Now, as with every book in the Bible, 
God's purpose is that the message should live in us and change us. Uh, There's an old hymn that captures the idea of this rather wonderfully. It goes like this. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me myself within your word. Show me myself and show me my saviour. Make the book live to me. Now those are the two things that should be happening to us as we go through the book of Judges. We ought to get a much more accurate picture of ourselves. Show me myself, Lord. Show me the extent of my rebellion against you. That's always, of course, a painful thing. None of us likes to be confronted by our own shortcomings and failings. But it is essential for our spiritual welfare that we start to see ourselves as God sees us. But at the same time, and to the very same extent, we ought to be getting a much more accurate picture of just what it meant for God's great deliverer, Jesus Christ, to come and save us. That's that's always a beautiful thing, and that's what strengthens us to live to please him. So that's why we're studying this book of the Bible together. Now, before we come to the passage this morning, just a word of context. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, through to the end of our passage this morning, chapter 3, verse 6, those are actually, that, that is the introduction to the whole book. And within that, chapter 2 is giving us God's explanation of everything that we're going to read about in the rest of Judges. Uh, so here is a helpful way to think about our passage this morning. Uh, one of our favourite places to visit on holiday is the West Coast Nature Reserve in Langabarn. Uh, it's actually one of the most precious nature reserves in the country. But uh, when we drove through it for the first time, I can remember thinking to myself, well, it's really not very special. Uh, Everything looks the same. Why on earth did we spend 80 rand to come in here? But if you pick up the information leaflet at the gate on the way in, it tells you about all the different wildlife in the reserve, where to find it, why it matters, and what you'll miss if you don't actually know what you're looking for as you drive through the park. That leaflet makes the West Coast Nature Reserve come alive to us. Now, in exactly the same way, Judges chapter 2 is the information leaflet for the rest of the whole book. It's telling you what to look out for, It's telling you why it matters. And God is saying to us, this is what's going on in the rest of the book, and these are the big lessons you should be looking out for. So it's going to be really important for us to get Judges 2 crystal clear in our minds. Because if we simply read the story of some of the big heroes in the book, men like Samson, men like Gideon, without having taken the trouble to understand chapter 2, we will miss the point. Because what chapter 2 shows us 
is a cycle that is repeated six times in the book. And the point of repeating the cycle six times is to impress upon us these two great lessons about our sin and about God's gracious salvation. And in each of these cycles, there are four stages. And to make it easy for us to remember them, I've given them all the same first letter, the letter R. Sadly, you'll see that it all starts with rebellion. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we left the people of God at a place called Bochim, and uh, they were in floods of tears. Do you remember that? But uh, at the time, we weren't sure whether those were tears of remorse or tears of genuine repentance. Now, in our passage this morning, uh, verses 6 to 9 are kind of a flashback reminding us of how things had been under Joshua. So fix your eyes on verse 7. Verse 7 says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Sounds marvellous. We're not prepared for verse 10. Verse 10 says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Notice the contrast. In verse 7, everyone's serving the Lord. At the end of verse 11, they're serving the Baals instead. And so part of the pattern in the book of Judges is uh, the people making these tremendous promises about serving the Lord and in no time at all they don't care. Verse 10 explains what's happened. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now will you notice it is not saying that they didn't know about the Lord. They probably did know something about him and they probably had heard some of the things that he had done. But the real problem is, listen to this, they didn't know the Lord personally. The phrase in the original means that they had no regard for him and they cared nothing for him. So can you see that within the space of just one generation there was a complete spiritual collapse in Israel? How on earth could that possibly happen? Well, for a start, the priests haven't been doing their job. Because elsewhere in the Old Testament we're told that God said the priests were meant to be preachers. It was their job to make sure that the people knew the law of the Lord. Quite clearly, they hadn't been doing it. But it also means that the parents hadn't been doing their job properly either. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 says to parents, this is God's word to parents, 
impress the commandments of the Lord on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So, it was primarily the job of parents to raise the children to know God and to know God's mind. But quite clearly, they hadn't been doing it. Quite clearly, family Bible reading and family devotions had gone out of the window. So, there was no word of God at home, and there was no word of God at the tabernacle either, and the result was a total spiritual collapse in the space of one generation. Now, we need to hear this. We need to hear it. Some of you will have heard the phrase, God has no grandchildren. And this is a classic example of that truth. What it means is that you can be born into the finest Christian home. You can attend the finest Christian church. But while a strong Christian heritage is a wonderful, wonderful blessing, by itself, it doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, On the reverse of the green question sheet, I've given you a comment on this by a writer that I think is, he makes a very good comment. He says, quote, One generation can rejoice in a living faith, enjoy intimate communion with God, revel in the kingship of Jesus over everyday life, even delight to teach their faith to those closest to them. Yet the next generation may come along and care nothing at all for any of it. It's not that they will formally reject it. It's just that they will know about the Lord rather than knowing the Lord personally. They might remain within the church in a cold and formal way, but there will be no fire in their faith, no warmth in their love, and no joy from hope. What Paul calls the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, will sound utterly foreign to them. Our children must not merely copy our faith, they need to be converted. End quote. It's rather good, isn't it? It reminds us, I think, that you know, a living faith is not just kind of a body of knowledge that can be passed down the family line, you know, rather like passing down the family candlesticks or whatever it is, the family silver to the next generation. You don't make Christians down the line like that. To know God is to acknowledge him personally. And a second-hand faith, received, as it were, by osmosis from my parents, is not the real thing. Actually, it's worthless and it doesn't last. So, can I ask you this morning to pray for the families here at St Barnabas? To pray for our children's church. Uh, It may be small at the moment, but uh, Alita and those who assist her in that vital job are helping parents point the children to Jesus. A parent's job is never, never easy. Uh, I know from my own experience that you have a whole lot of different hopes and ambitions for your children, but can I just say that a million years from now, the only thing 
that will finally matter is that our children have grown up loving and serving Jesus. That's right, isn't it? So let's pray for God's blessing upon our children's church and that more children will come and join it. So here in Judges, we're being told that an entire generation grew up without any personal knowledge of God. And the immediate and unavoidable consequence of that is idolatry, verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who'd brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. So can you see there, there are two sides to the problem. Um, The first is that they forsook the Lord, they abandoned him, they turned away from him. They decided, well, you know, God is no longer relevant. And then instead, they began to serve the Baals. Now, Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. And Baal worship was all about manipulation. Because the Canaanites had kind of developed a uh, religious program of ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, and bodily mutilation. And all of that was designed to persuade Baal to grant fertility to your family, to your crops, and to your livestock. So, you see, it was all about what the worshipper did to persuade Baal to grant your requests. And, my friends, that is the essence of all false religion. There's no concept of grace. It's all about what I do, about what I give, about what I achieve in order to get the deity to do what I want. And that is right at the heart of all false religion. And if you're wanting to see where this is going and how this connects to us, let me tell you, it is everywhere today. Of course, it's nothing like as crude as uh, Baal worship was then, but the same principle is at work in all contemporary distortions of Christianity, where the worshipper thinks, if I do this, or I give that, or I achieve this, God will do what I want. Now, obviously that's the idea, isn't it, behind the prosperity gospel. Uh, In the prosperity gospel, the worshipper says, if I give enough money to the church, God will heal me or give me success at work, or give me a happy life. Now that's obvious, we're familiar with that, there's nothing new in it. Uh, It's a lie, of course, but most of us, I think, can recognise that at a thousand paces. More subtle, more subtle, is the idea that uh, if I have a daily quiet time, preferably quite a long one, and uh, if I go to church every Sunday... And if I get uh, the answers 100% right in the weekly Bible study, and uh, if I get distinctions at GWC, 
And uh, if I live a super obedient life, well, God owes me. I've got an arm lock on him. Now, my friends, that is false religion. It doesn't mean that any of those things are wrong, far from it. They are all excellent spiritual disciplines to enable me to love God more and serve him better. Excellent spiritual disciplines. But if I think that doing those things puts God in my debt or obligates him to give me what I want, that is not Christianity. It is actually Baal worship in 21st century clothing. Because it's all about what I do, rather than what God has done. You see, real Christianity is a response to the grace of God who has already done everything necessary for my salvation. And all I have to do is to receive it as a free gift. Amen? Amen. But here you see, uh, because one generation failed to know the Lord in that way, the next generation abandoned him altogether and turned to other gods. And the result... Well, the Lord was provoked to anger. And that brings us to the second R in the cycle, which is much briefer. And we've called this retribution, which is God's just punishment. I think for those people who think of God as a kind of gentle grandfather figure, who can always be placated with a few gentle words, I think this is a bit of a surprise. But just look at it. Israel abandoned the Lord and worshipped other gods. How does God respond to something like that? Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Someone has said, beware the fury of a patient man. But this passage says, beware the fury of a patient God. See, God's anger may well be slow to come, but it does come always and inevitably against persistent rebels. And when it does, it's devastating. Many Christians today, particularly in the West, have a very uh, relaxed attitude to sin. But surely this passage is saying to us that sin matters. God cares about our rebellion, and he cares about it a lot. And uh, here, God's anger burns against rebellious people, just as he promised it would. So, when they went out to fight against their enemies, God didn't defeat those enemies as he had done before. His hand was against his own people, and he allowed them to be defeated. God's people were in terrible distress. Now, some people say, well, you know, Simon, that's just the God of the Old Testament. God of the New Testament isn't like that at all. Much softer, much kinder. 
But you see, when someone says that, it simply means they don't know their Bible. Because the New Testament says that our God is a consuming fire. And it's the New Testament, isn't it, that says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, friends, the God of the Bible is not someone to be trifled with. Of course, if we put ourselves, uh, uh, put our trust in the hands of the Lord Jesus, we are 100% safe from the anger of God. But can I say that only a fool would be complacent about that? Only a fool would allow themselves to settle into regular patterns of sin. Only a fool would trifle with the justice of God. Now, of course, resisting sin isn't easy. But sin does offer the delight of momentary pleasure. And uh, those delights can so easily completely fill our horizons that we can't see past the sin to God. Every Christian, I think, knows that struggle and knows that sin can look very attractive indeed. But that is merely part of sin's deceit. And no sin is worth going to hell for. And that's why you see the New Testament keeps urging us to put sin to death and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to make our calling and election sure. So friends, let us beware of the fury of a patient God. But then Judges 2 shows us the most wonderful and rather unexpected thing because it shows God reaching out to rescue the very people who've abandoned him. And that's our third R this morning. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now the rest of the book is going to put flesh on the bones of verse 16 as we meet six major and six minor judges or deliverers. This morning I just want you to enjoy and savour the simplicity of verse 16. Because I think what is so very striking there, do you notice this? There's no religious ritual. There's no burning of incense. There aren't even any prayers. Surely that's deliberate, isn't it? There are times later in the book when uh, things get really bad and the people of God cry out to the Lord for help, but here they're completely silent. And I think that's to, that's to remind us that when God saves, it is entirely his own work. It's a great theme in the Bible that when God acts to save, the catalyst for that rescue is not any kind of moral virtue on the part of man. No, the impulse to rescue only ever comes from God's love and his compassion for people who don't deserve it. The promise-keeping God acts to save. And we should be surprised, I think, by God's salvation every time we meet it. 
back in the 19th century, there was a, a German poet by the name of Heinrich Heine, and he was an atheist. Uh, when he was on his deathbed, uh, they came to him and said, uh, would you like us to send for a priest? And uh, Heine declined, and then he said, no, I don't need a priest. God will forgive me. That's his job. Can I say that is not right? God is not obliged to forgive anybody. So we should never, never, never lose sight of what a big thing it is that God should take the initiative to rescue the very people who've rejected him. But of course that's our God in the New Testament, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I think it's crucial that we, we don't underplay this aspect of the cycle when we're reading the book of Judges. Uh, there are people who say that Judges is a very depressing read, um, that all it gives us is page after page after page of the failures of God's people. And they say that the only reason Judges is in the Bible is to teach us about our failure and our need of a saviour. Well, there is a grain of truth in that. But it's not just about human failure. It's just as much about the wonderful, wonderful grace of God. Yes, the people do fail. But the more they see of their sin, the more we see the grace of God. So, Judges is going to warm our hearts this term by showing us the sovereign grace of God. Because Israel abandoned the Lord, they worship other gods, they bring judgment on themselves, and even before they say sorry, or anybody prays, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now we can only marvel, can't we, at that degree of grace and love. It's supernatural. And when we get to this point in the chapter, I think we think to ourselves, well, you know, surely this grace is going to win the hearts of the people. Surely they've got the message. Sadly, the fourth R is repeat. Verse 17 Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Verse 19, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Well, we're sometimes told, aren't we, that a wise man learns from his mistakes. But uh, clearly, Israel weren't wise. 
They were fools. And the fools of Israel sank to new levels of depravity at every available opportunity. And as rebellion repeated itself, so did God's retribution, verse 20. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and hasn't listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. I think verse 20 is particularly cutting because up to this point in the the Old Testament, um, God has referred to Israel as my people. But now, verse 20, this nation. In other words, the people of God have become just like everybody else, all the other nations, even the Canaanites. And it's very striking to note that from this point on in the book, Israel capture no new territory in Canaan. All the judges ever do is to get rid of the raiders who've been oppressing the people. And that's because Israel haven't obeyed the Lord and his anger is kindled against them. And the new thing that comes in this last section in verse 22 is is the extra reason why God allowed the nations to remain as a thorn in the flesh of Israel. And it's not just to punish them. According to verse 22, it's to test them to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. So, in some ways, the book of Judges is uh, a bit like an exam paper. I know you're all fed up with exams, but it is a bit like an exam paper. Because with each new generation, the question is this. Are they going to obey the commandments of God or not? And I think the point that the writer is making is that the greatest battle in the book of Judges isn't fought by Samson or Gideon or any of the other judges. No, it is the battle fought by the Lord God for the wholehearted allegiance of his people. And that helps us understand chapter 3 verse 2 which says that God did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites. That's not talking about the conduct of warfare. It's talking about the significance of warfare. Because the first generation didn't um, obey the Lord fully. They refused to drive out the nations as God had commanded them. And as we saw last week, their obedience was partial obedience. It was Sunday at church obedience, it wasn't Monday morning at the office obedience. And so with each new generation, the question is, are they going to do any better? Are they going to take steps to protect their own hearts and the hearts of their children from the idolatry that was doing so much damage? And the answer is in verses 5 and 6. The Israelites lived amongst all those nations. Verse 6, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. How on earth did that happen? 
Well, you can sort of picture it, can't you? Uh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Isaacson uh, having breakfast together on uh, Saturday morning. And uh, he says to her, well, you know, what are we going to do about Rebecca? Uh, you know, she's getting on. It is time she got married. Her biological clock is ticking. Uh, what about that Canaanite family next door? Uh, you know, they've got a very handsome boy. Looks, uh, looks he could be a suitable candidate. Apparently, um, something strange happened to his brother. I think they sacrificed him in the fire when he was a child. What a, that's a sadness. But uh, the son, uh, Mr. Fur, or whatever his name is, he's a strapping young fellow. And clearly there must be something in Baal worship. I mean, look at the size of their farm. You know, crops going on as far as the eye can see, endless livestock. Clearly there's something in this Baal thing. Perhaps I'd better go around and, and have a chat with him and see if we can't sort out something for Rebecca. And then before you know it, they're worshipping other gods. Was it perhaps something like that? Two big lessons to look out for in the book of Judges. The repeated failure of man who only gets worse in each successive generation. It is a depressing downward spiral. The people of God fail to walk in God's ways and in the book of Judges they deserve everything they get. But over and above that, the more we see of sin, the more the grace of God is magnified and the more grateful we are for the king who died to rescue us. So that's where we're going. Let's pray. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me myself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Saviour. And make the book live to me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us ourselves as you see us, as we really are. Silly sheep prone to wander, who desperately need a shepherd. And show us in a fresh way the amazing, wonderful, perfect salvation that is ours in Jesus, who cleanses us from every sin. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.